I'm Kate Daniels. To begin this hour of conversation about youth, we have psychology professor Andrew Solomon. Andrew teaches at Columbia University, is also a lecturer and activist. Andrew is also a writer who contributes to The New Yorker, among other publications, and is the author of a number of books, the most recent, Far From the Tree, Young Adult Edition, How Children and Their Parents Learn to Accept One Another, Our Differences Unite Us. It's a significant concept in honestly regarding our youth. Let's meet Andrew and hear some of his insights. Andrew Solomon, good morning, and thank you so greatly for joining us this morning. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I want to say right at the outset, I do so appreciate the work that you do, that your writing, your curiosity and your research, and really at the base of it all, you know, just all the honesty that comes with it. So thank you for your work and this great new book, Far From the Tree. Well, thank you very much. What a kind thing to say. So Far From the Tree is actually in its, uh, what, like second lifespan, its second iteration, because this one is now considered a young adult edition. Is it really that different from the adult edition? It's different from the adult edition in two ways. In the first place, it's a lot shorter, so that it's um, faster and easier to write and more simply written. But also, it shifts the perspective a little bit, so it isn't only the story of how parents manage to figure out how to deal with children who are different from them, but also how children who find themselves in some way different from their parents manage to figure out a way to deal with their parents. It's about how the kids themselves arrive at a sense of purpose or dignity or coherence or integrity. Um, It's kind of the flip side of the story. So we can certainly see what the value is here for both parents and the youth, because uh, certainly young adults, uh, teens could really easily read this and identify and I think gain a sense of insight and comfort, wouldn't they? You know, most kids, in my experience, and I think of myself as a kid too, have a sense that they uh, come from a different planet than their parents. And that they are trying to figure out their parents and that their parents don't really understand them. So this is a book that I hope will offer hope not only to kids who have got the kind of more extreme differences I write about, but to kids across the board to understand what is it like to be different from your family? What is it like um, to juxtapose how well your family has to know you in order to love you? And what are the ways that you find a way through so that you all get along okay and can all cope with one another? And that, of course, is invaluable. It also, I feel, like someone like myself who has this opportunity that doesn't necessarily identify with a particular group, having the insights really builds an important understanding and empathy, I feel. And that's really critically important here, too. Absolutely. Understanding and empathy and being able to recognize that we all of us who love our children or all of us who love our parents having to love people who are a little different from us. You know, I often think of this line, we not only um, take care of our children because we love them, but also love them because we take care of them. And a lot of what this book is about is that intensely bonding experience in which parents take care of children and in which children are the recipients, at least in early childhood, of a kind of helpless care that they need in order to survive. And what is the legacy of that? And... um, what are the ways in which uh, in which family gives 
meaning and shape to the rest of one's life. You know, whether you love your family or can't stand your family, your family is an awfully big part of defining who you are and how you exist in the world. And how do you manage to negotiate your way through that confusing territory? Precisely. And then by sharing these stories, and you interviewed 300 people, 300 families for the content of the book, correct? I did. Um, It was a project I spent 11 years working on the original book, and now I've done this young adult edition, which I've been working on for another year and a half. So it's been a long, in-depth project with all these families. Okay, so that should really speak to us about how utterly invaluable this is, that so much time and blood, sweat, and tears, I would guess, but (laughs) (laughs) but your love, too, and your compassion have come into it. Well, I'd like to think so. I mean, the framing narrative of the book is that I was the gay kid of straight parents and that I feel my parents in many ways didn't understand who I was or what I needed. And I also think that, you know, layers of prejudice that existed both within them and within the larger society made our relationship a lot more difficult than it should have been. So I start from that autobiographical perspective, and then I end the book with a description of becoming a parent. And in a way, I feel like in order to... um, uh, Uh, to write the book, my mission had to be to forgive my parents, but writing it was the thing that propelled me toward parenthood. So how do you get from being disillusioned with your own parents to reaching a point at which you feel ready to have a family yourself? Well, in some cases, I I would imagine people would arrive at that thinking, well, I know I can do a darn better job than that, so that's why I'm going to have kids. Yeah, but you need to think it through to do a darn better job. You can't just assume. I mean, what people tend to assume is, I know what I wanted my parents to be like as parents to me, and they weren't like that. But what we tend then to do is to try to be the parents we wanted. But we have children who aren't us, and those children often require different parenting abilities in different positions than the ones that we've developed into having. So how do you reconcile the basic goodwill with which I think most people start off being parents with all of the agony that can be involved in family dynamics? And that's where I feel sharing these stories far from the tree, seeing what goes on with other people's lives and how they have really navigated the the whole process I hope is enlightening, regardless of what stage a person might be in this journey, whether they're not parents yet, whether they are, whether they're struggling with some of these same things. I think here is such a, we could call it a guidebook in a way that you can adapt it to whatever your circumstances are. Well, I love that idea. Yes, a guidebook is exactly what I think it is, and I hope it is very widely adaptable. I mean, I was talking to families who are looking at relatively extreme kinds of differences, and families of deaf people and dwarves, families of people with Down syndrome or autism or schizophrenia, um, at families of people with multiple severe disabilities, at families of prodigies who are also completely overwhelmed, even though they're less miserable than the families of people with disabilities equally confused at families bringing up children conceived in rape or kids who commit crimes or kids who are transgender. I was trying to look at a very broad range of experience and say all of these differences, which each of which you think of as being its own story, they actually have a lot in common. And then saying, and if they all have a lot in common, then all of us have a lot in common. And what is the most basic experience that families tend to have? It's figuring out how to deal with senses of difference within their family. 
So if you have a child who has diastrophic dwarfism and you think, well, I only have something in common with other families dealing with diastrophic dwarfism, you're talking about a few hundred families in the world. But if you think, I have something in common with every family that's dealing with a child who is bewildering and confusing and who doesn't know what to do with their own kid, then you discover you have something in common with most of humanity. And one of the part of the subtitle for the young adults edition is Our Differences Unite Us. And that's really the point that I want to make is that each of these differences that feel so stigmatizing, so isolating, so problematical, each of them actually spills over into a collective experience. And that collective experience is the experience of difference and the way that we manage to use difference not as something that um, impedes love, but in some ways as the cornerstone of the kind of lasting love that families strive toward. And this is where I feel that you have really given us such a gift, Andrew, is that you really delved into this. You met these people one-on-one. In fact, if we go to your website, we can see some of those videos of the conversations that you had with the families and or the individuals. This way, we have this gift to be able to gain that understanding. We don't have to go seek this out. By reading these stories, we just get an enormous wealth of information to have that kind of good navigation. Well, yes, that, of course, is the idea. Um, You've identified it perfectly. And I think um, part of it is just that so many of these stories are so moving. I mean, you pointed out that I interviewed 300 families there, not all in even the um, original edition, and the young adult version is much shortened and simplified to make it a little more accessible and a little bit easier to read. And uh, so they aren't all in there, but the ones that are in there, um, of which there are many, 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 are stories which I found really, you know, almost impossibly moving. And um, I, I kept being struck by how different these lives were in the end from the way they seemed when the kids were given a diagnosis or when the family began to realize they had a child who was different. It was a very different world than it was for those families as the kids grew up and as the love between them grew. And wasn't it so that they would say they would not trade it, that the life that they had created as a result of this was essentially greater than they could have ever imagined? Absolutely. And I was amazed by how, under what adverse circumstances that happened. You know, I had families of people with autism who ended up saying, I sort of, I still find autism bewildering. I still wish I understood my child better, but I love my child for who he or she is. And while I'd like to make his or her life easier, I don't want to get uh, a different child instead. And, you know, people would say to me, come on, don't be ridiculous. All of these families would rather have other children. Um, Why would they want children with all of these challenges and all of these differences? And I said, okay, let's take all the families we can find who have kids um, and say to them that we're going to offer them a special exchange program in which they can turn in their kids for other kids who are better than those kids. They can turn them in for kids who are nicer and who are brighter and who are more polite and who are all kinds of other things. You know, nobody would go for it. People fall in love with the children they have. And I wanted to trace how that happens even under extreme circumstances and show how that time together makes such a difference and and show how often authorities have said your child is hopeless and the experience of the family over time is 
Now, our child actually can do amazing things. I mean, one of the stories that I've told, there's a video on the website, and it's in the book, and it's in the YA edition, and it's everywhere I can put it, was the story of Clinton Brown, who was born with this very extreme dwarfing condition. His parents were told, look, he's never going to walk, he's never going to talk, he's never going to recognize you, and he's not going to live very long. Leave him here at the hospital so he can die quietly. And his mother thought about it for a few days, and then she thought, no, that's my baby, and I have to take him home. And if he dies in a few months without ever knowing who I am, at least I'll know I did my best. So she took him home, and even though she didn't have huge resources, economical or educational, she eventually found her way to the best doctor in the country for the treatment of those conditions. And she described how all of these other doctors she had seen at home had said to her, oh, your child will never be able to do this, your child will never be able to do that, and are you prepared for this, that, and the other thing? And she got to this doctor at Johns Hopkins who said to her, let me tell you, that's going to be a handsome young man one day. And she took him home, and then that doctor said, but if he's going to walk, he's going to need a lot of surgery. And he had 30 major surgical procedures in the course of his childhood. And while he was stuck in the hospital recovering from them all, he figured there was nothing else much to do, so he might as well do his schoolwork. And he ended up being really good at it, and he ended up being the first member of his family to go to college. And he went to college not far from where his parents lived, and he joined a fraternity and lived there and had a specially fitted car he could drive. And his mother called me one day and said that she was on her way home from shopping. She said, and I drove past a bar, and there was Clinton's car parked outside a bar. She said, I thought he's three feet tall, they're six feet tall, two beers for them is four beers for him. She said, and I wanted to go in and interrupt, but I knew I couldn't do that. So I um, uh, drove home and left him 11 messages on his voicemail. And then she said, if someone had told me when he was born that my future worry would be that he would go drinking and driving with his college buddies, I'd have been so thrilled to have that problem. And I said, what do you think you did? What do you think that allowed uh, someone with such a dire prognosis to turn out so well? And she said, what did we do? We loved him, that's all. Clinton just always had that light in him. And we were fortunate enough to be the first to see it there. And a few weeks ago, I went to Clinton's wedding, um, and it was one of the most joyful weddings I've ever been to. Oh, that's so exciting! Because uh, in the video, video uh, and in the book, he t- he talks about you know how happy he is with his family and his girlfriend. Now she's his wife. Now she's his wife. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, it, it it crossed my mind. Like, could we just capture that in a pill? But no, no. What we there's no way to do that. You need to live an experience life. But I think gain. Uh, just that encouragement from these stories and really have hope and, and and then that desire to make it happen in our own families. Well, I feel it's a book about hope. It's a book about hope both for the parents and for the kids. It's a book that says when you have a child who's different and frustrating, the basic message you get from everyone is, um, oh, I'm so sorry, your life is going to be a disaster. You know, you'll just have to make the most of it. But a lot of the time it's not only that these lives end up not being disastrous, is that they end up having, you know, a real figuration of joy in them. And with this young adult edition, what I've tried to do is to say to kids, look, you think your parents don't understand you and are awful. Here are the ways you can begin to understand what it's like for them. 
and to say to the parents, you think you have these kids who are never going to be able to understand who you are or do anything. This is how you bond. This is how you come out with intact relationships. Parent-child relationships, especially in adolescence, tend to be very damaged. How do you end up with a positive outcome? So it's a book about hope. Oh, so much so that this is a book then for everyone. And because it is shorter, maybe the young adult edition is for most of us to read so that we get, uh, if we can call this, the condensed version. But it has the essence, the those all those sparks, these stories, uh, again, are just so encouraging. And uh, I think all of us could benefit so greatly, whether in our families or just in the world at large, to just be so much more uh, understanding and accepting of all of those around us. Well, that's certainly the idea. And we're living in a time right now when there's a lot of unaccepting rhetoric coming out of government. And I feel like having this condensed edition, which absolutely is something that anyone who doesn't want to read the whole great big chunky original book could read, adult or kid. I feel like in having that condensed edition, it's because I want to spread the message as broadly as possible that, um, uh, you know, acceptance is protection um, and that being able to accept your kids for who they are and your parents for who they are is the first step toward having really a, a better feeling for yourself and for your life. So to that end, let's let's do this little promotion thing. Far From the Tree, brand new edition, the young adult edition. Of course, go find it in your favorite bookstore or online because, and if it's not there, which it should be, but if it's not, you ask for it, right? Right. Yes. People can always order it. Absolutely. So Far From the Tree. And then... Of course, a wealth of information as well on your website because that will keep changing and morphing and such. And these videos that we alluded to earlier are there. So uh, the website is very, very simple, isn't it, Andrew? Well, there are two websites. There's a um, farfromthetree.com website. And then there's also my personal website, which is andrewsholloman.com. And anyone who wants to get in touch with me and talk about these issues and who's looked at the book and has questions, I can always be reached through andrewsholloman.com. And so as we we encourage this and say it's really something that... uh, well, we won't say you have to, but you ought to do because it's going to be the best gift that you give yourself is uh, these stories. They show how it takes time. We, uh, it will open the door and get us started on a journey. Don't expect that things change instantly, right? Right. right. Um, it's, it's sort of a way to move forward. But I think it gives a lot of information. I mean, I've had a lot of people who've written to me and who've said, um, you know, I was going to terminate a pregnancy with a child who has um, a Down syndrome. And I read the book and thought, I actually can do this. And I decided to keep it. I've had some from people who've said, I read it and thought things were so heroic, I didn't know how to do it. Um, and I, it made me sort of um, concerned. But the largest number I've had have been from people who say, I had a child who was different, and I felt I didn't know what to do. And hearing the stories of all of these different people has given me a sense of what the ways are to move forward and to, and to build a, a good life. And look, it's not that I'm saying it's incredibly easy to have a child who's different from you, or it's incredibly easy to be different from your parents. Those are difficult experiences, and they'll remain difficult experiences. 
what I have said, I think, um, is that every family there is is negotiating an experience of difference with their kids. Every parent sometimes looks at their child and thinks, what planet did you come from? And every child sometimes thinks, my parents are, um, you know, never understood who I am. They can't understand who I am. They don't see me truly and clearly. They have this distorted vision of me. Those are the most basic experiences that exist between parents and children. So if you accept that those are the most basic experiences, then what do you do to them? And, or how do you process them? And how do you find hope? And I mean, the book includes a set of interviews with Sue Klebold, the mother of Dylan Klebold, who is one of the perpetrators of the Columbine Massacre. And I always remember um, uh, spending all this time with Tom and Sue Klebold talking about what their experience had been of, you know, really about the darkest experience you could have as a parent. Um, and then uh, eventually having dinner with Sue Klebold one night, and she said, you know, when it first happened, I used to wish I had never had children. If I hadn't gone to Ohio State, I wouldn't have met Tom. Dylan wouldn't have been born, and this terrible thing, the Columbine Massacre of 1999, which was the worst school shooting in history, she said this terrible thing wouldn't have happened. She said, but over time, I've come to feel that I love the children I have so much that I wouldn't want to imagine a life without them, even at the price of this pain. When I say that, I'm talking about my own pain, of course, and not the pain of other people. But life is full of suffering, and this is mine. So while I know it would have been better for the world if Dylan had never been born, I've decided it would not have been better for me. And after I heard her say that, and I thought, how can she possibly be grateful to have this child? I was talking to someone who had um, uh, two children with very severe disabilities through a sort of Lucas genetic um, set of circumstances, and who had talked about finding meaning, and she said, you know, People always give us these little sayings like, God doesn't give you any more than you can handle. But children like ours are not preordained as a gift. They're a gift because that's what we have chosen. And I ultimately came in working on this book to believe it is a choice. You have a choice when you have a child who is so different from you and from what you had imagined when you set out to have a child. You have a choice to say, this difference is going to destroy me or I'm going to find meaning in this difference. And the people who find meaning help not only themselves, but also their children. There is a study of um, uh, uh, mothers who were asked um, uh, when they had children with a variety of difficult diagnoses uh, fairly early in those children's lives, do you think you will find meaning in this experience? And 10 years later, the parents who had said, I think we'll find meaning, had children who were doing better clinically than the others. So that's what allows the children to come through and to thrive, and that's what allows the family to stay intact. And I wanted to look at that choice. How do people choose to find meaning? And in doing a young adult edition, which is, as we've said, something that will be accessible to a much wider readership to say, okay, here are some instructions for how you go about finding meaning, because that's very hard to invent the meaning for yourself if you don't have any models to work with. And I... Today, of course, we're so fortunate with the ways that we can connect. The Internet has made it so much easier to perhaps make these connections with some of these people or, or similar people, or, or there's the organizations where the, there's then that additional support so that there's uh, not a need to feel isolated and alone going through a particular challenge. Um, and I think that 
feeling isolated and alone is a lot of what's most poisonous. And I've had a lot of people write to me since this book came out and say, I felt so alone, and then I read your book, and now I don't feel so alone anymore. And that's been very, very, very touching and very meaningful to me to begin to get those responses. I I hope there will be more people who are made to feel less alone in these experiences. As I say, people have to recognize that even though, obviously, having a child who is uh, transgender or who has autism or who's deaf is going to present challenges that ordinary um, parenthood uh, doesn't pose. Still, the experience of dealing with difference is its just as a universal. Um, and there's no need to feel as alone as people do. Um, you know, we all lead lives of quiet desperation, as mm. Thoreau said, but actually we don't need to. Yes, exactly. And here is one great, grand way to do so with this new book, the young adult edition of Far From the Tree, really gives us that that hope, going to really underscore that word. There's that hope that is given to each and every one of us. And I want to think of it as all of us because we really are in this all together. Just to, even if we can maybe share a smile or reach out to a neighbor who has maybe a child with some of these conditions, maybe then we can also be part of making this a, a, a such a better world, a more loving world. A more loving world. And I mean, one mother for, with a transgender child um, who had grown up in Montana, which is not necessarily the most obvious place to be dealing with something like that. I remember her saying, you know, when it first, when I first found out uh, that my son Paul was going to turn into my daughter Kim, you know, she said I was completely horrified and completely terrified, and I didn't understand what was happening. She said, but I had an unhappy son, and I have a joyful daughter. She said, and she said, it's not that I don't sometimes miss Paul. She said, but look at Kim, look what an amazing person she is, and the courage it took, the courage it took to become herself. I can't even imagine how anyone could have or arrive at that courage. And so this process, which had initially seemed so threatening to her, ended up being one in which she found a great deal of meaning and ultimately a really joyful connection to her own child. Yes, just really reaches deep into the heart and and kind of gives it a little uh, what a little shake up because it just makes us realize how at the core uh, there's the spirit of who we are and really again just to experience the love, share that love and uh, and hope with each other. Absolutely. Um... And not to allow medical prognoses, mm. you know, where they sort of say your child has this condition or that condition, to take over from the emotional reality that this is still your child. It's not as though once the doctor says your child has X, you've kind of lost that child forever into the world of medicine. The conversation has shifted a little bit. You've lost your child for the moment um, into a certain kind of difference, but it's still your child and they're still there. I mean, again, you know, just what Clint's mother said what did we do? We loved him. That's all. Um, how do you go about it? I mean, there are some parents who, when they're faced with these differences, think, I can't love a child like that. Um, what's the process through which they climb back to it? And how do they do it honestly? I mean, there's another mother who lost a child who had uh, multiple severe difficulties, uh, disabilities and who died through caregiver neglect. And when I went to the internment of that child's ashes, the mother said, 
Let me bury here the rage I feel to have been twice robbed. Once of the child I wanted, and once of the son I loved. And I think that's the process. It's not that these experiences don't also have a lot of pain inscribed in them. It's not that family relations don't have a lot of pain inscribed in them. They do. They have endless pain inscribed in them. It's that the issue of family relations um, also can resolve into the attachment that forms. And as you continue to care for a child who's got a difference, or indeed for a child who doesn't have a noticeable difference, as you continue to care for these different kinds of children, um, what you arrive at um, over and over again is a surprisingly coherent love. Oh, these stories. You've shared just a few of the hundreds of stories that we will touch upon in Far From the Tree. Andrew Solomon, you have done us just a world of service by writing this book, by immersing yourself in the work that you do. And I certainly appreciate that you've taken time with us this morning to really give us these invaluable insights. Well, thank you. I appreciate your taking the time to discuss them with me. It's just means the world to me. It's been a gift.